Good afternoon. The task given to me in this lesson is impossible for two reasons. Reason number one, you just had lunch. And reason number two is that in the previous lesson of the Covenant of Works and the Noahic Covenant, we made it to Genesis 9, and now we need to go to the end of the Old Testament. (laughs) That's not fair. Where's Aaron? (laughs) Thank you, Aaron. No. It it is uh, a lot to cover, and so I'd ask you to have your Bibles ready and... You'll probably have a burn on your thumb by the end of the lesson from searching for scriptures as we survey many different passages. We've said already, just to sort of keep the argument running and developing, uh, that God decrees the end from the beginning, that the end is the consummation of all things in Christ Jesus, and we've said that the, the steps that lead to the end God has moved history on its way by establishing kingdoms by way of covenant and ruling those kingdoms by way of covenant. And these kingdoms and these covenants all contribute to the one united singular plan of God. And we've looked so far at the kingdom of creation with the covenant of works and the Noahic covenant, a a common cursed kingdom of common grace. Now, within that world, within the kingdom of creation, within a cursed world, but also a world preserved and given common grace, God established another kingdom, a specific place. He delegated dominion to man through covenant, three covenants in particular that are going to establish and govern this kingdom, and that kingdom is, of course, the kingdom of Israel, And the covenants involved are the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and the Davidic covenant. And so it actually is not impossible to cover the rest of the Old Testament in one lesson because it's all going to be focused on one kingdom and its covenants. Let us do precisely this and consider in the very obvious order the Abrahamic covenant then the Mosaic Covenant, and then the Davidic Covenant, which all work together. They all serve their own purpose in cooperation with the other covenants to establish and to govern the kingdom of Israel in preparation for the kingdom of Christ and the new covenant. So, beginning with the Abrahamic Covenant, as Christians growing up in the church, you hear about Israel time and time again. You read about Israel time and time again as you study the Bible, as you're in Sunday school or in your listening to sermons. But why do we hear so much about Israel? Why is Israel so special? How did Israel even come to be? The answer to those questions is found first in God's dealings with one man, Abram. Abram was just like you and me. He was just one man among the growing and dispersing peoples of the earth after God scattered mankind at Babel. And the only thing that makes Abram special or significant among all these peoples that are multiplying and scattering is that in Genesis 12, God made very special promises to him. Turn to Genesis 12. That's where we're going to begin. Genesis 12 God 
graciously, freely, kindly, condescendingly makes promises to Abraham and blesses him. Genesis 12, after God calls him to travel to Canaan, he promises him in verse 2, God says to Abram, I will make of you a great nation. I will multiply you. That's what he's saying. I'll make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then Abraham, Abram arrives in Canaan, and look at verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. Now notice with me several fundamental aspects of the Abrahamic covenant. The covenant is not yet made. This is the, the beginning phases of the covenant. We see that God is dealing with Abram on behalf of his offspring. To your offspring, God says. These are the parties of the Abrahamic covenant. Abraham and his offspring whom he represents. And God has promised a particular land for them, the land of Canaan. So by way of covenant, although the covenant is still developing, God has now reserved a particular place on the earth, a particular dominion by way of covenant. The covenant is establishing a land and a people, the offspring of Abram, in the land of Canaan. And God here promises in Genesis 12 that from this people, Abram's offspring, in this place, Canaan, there will come a blessing for the entire world. Now, I want you to notice with me the end declared from the beginning. We saw it in the, in the lesson that my father gave on the, the first announcement of the gospel from Genesis 3, the end is declared from the beginning. Here in Genesis 12, the same end is being declared from the beginning. Why is Abram and his offspring, why are they given this land? Why are they given these wonderful promises? From the very first moment of its existence as a nation and as a covenant people, they already have in view a blessing for the entire world. They have a purpose. They have a destination. They have a, a telos. They're going somewhere. We, our people, from this place, we will bless the world. Well, let me proceed to Genesis 15, where in Genesis 12, it's, it's just promises. And don't misunderstand me. They're just promises. <laughs> what I mean is they're promises without anything additional added to them. It's not a covenant yet in Genesis 12. In Genesis 15, Abram asks God for a confirmation of those promises. How, how do I know? How will I know that my offspring will be numerous? How do I know that my offspring will inherit the land? How shall I know? You've promised this, but I have no heir. Can you assure me? Can you confirm these promises to me? And so in order to confirm the promises to Abram, because God is merciful and gracious and patient and kind, God makes a covenant with him. God passes through animal parts in theophany, saying that he takes upon himself the, the curse. He must be faithful to fulfill his commitment. How does Abram know that God will multiply him and bring his, land into, bring his offspring into the land of Canaan? God says, I'll strengthen my promise and put it in the form of a covenant for your sake to show you more convincingly the, my, the unchangeable nature of my promise. 
I'll make a covenant with you. And verse 18 summarizes it for us. On that day, this is Genesis 15, 18, on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your offspring I give this land. He'd already made that promise, but now it's strengthened into the form of a covenant through that curse that God invokes upon himself by passing through the animal parts in theophany. Not that God could ever fail in his promise, but it's for Abram's sake. It's for confirming to him that God makes this covenant with him. I will multiply you. I will surely bring your descendants into Canaan. And so in Genesis 15, we have again the parties, Abram and his offspring, the promise, the land of Canaan. And God solidifies and confirms it in a covenant-making ceremony. Well, let's, let's move to Genesis 17, where God repeats again the same parties, the same promises in the beginning part of chapter 17. But then in, in the later part of chapter 17, God expands his dealings with Abram or Abraham. Until now, all that we've seen is, is commitments on God's part. I will, I will, I will multiply you. I will bless you. I will give your offspring the land. One of your descendants, I will cause that he brings a blessing to the world. God's commitments and the curse against God if he fails, which of course he cannot. In Genesis 17, there's a transition and an expansion to Abraham and his offspring and their commitments and their responsibilities in the covenant. In fact, God adds precepts and penalties for Abraham and his offspring. Look at verse 9. And God said to Abraham, as for you, it's your turn, you shall keep my covenant. It's a covenant that must be kept. You and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Notice that Adam, not Adam, Abraham must keep the covenant. This is the same language used in the garden, to keep the garden, to guard it, to make sure that it is kept, to be obedient. There are obligations for Abraham and his offspring that they must keep. In particular, circumcision is instituted, and verse 14 makes it clear that if you refuse the law of the covenant, you will be cut off and excluded from the blessings of the covenant. Verse 14, Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So Genesis 17 tells us that the Abrahamic covenant can be, must be kept or guarded. And if it is not, if you break it, it will cut you off and disinherit you from the blessings, from the promises. Very quickly then, we can see the complete Abrahamic covenant covenant. It's parties, Abraham and his offspring. The promises, God will multiply them. God will bring them into the land of Canaan. God will bring about a world-blessing offspring. The precepts, they must observe circumcision and keep the covenant. The penalties, if they break the covenant, they are cut off from it. And so, in Abraham's covenant, there is a, um, I don't want to use the word tension, but there's a relation between God's commitments and man's commitments. God promises in Genesis 15 to absolutely and assuredly do what he promised to do, to multiply and bring them into the land. That cannot change. It cannot fail. God will do it. And so there is a corporate general guarantee of fulfillment in the Abrahamic covenant on God's part. He passes through the animals. He invokes the curse against himself. He must keep his word. 
At the same time, individuals can cut themselves off from these blessings that God will most surely provide. God will multiply the descendants and bring them into the land, but if they break the covenant, then individuals can cut themselves off and fail to inherit and receive the promises of the Abrahamic covenant. So there's a certain substratum, a certain fundamental guaranteed nature to the Abrahamic covenant on God's part, but then there is also a, a, a higher level of man's need for faithfulness to keep the covenant, to not break it, or else they will be cut off and excluded. This covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, or sometimes called, because uh, Stephen calls it this in the book of Acts, the covenant of circumcision, this is what makes Israel to be Israel. This is what gives them their identity. This is what gives them their land. This is what makes them special. This is what takes them from all the nations of the earth, and God deals with them particularly and peculiarly through Abraham, their head, their federal head. They are the heirs of Canaan. They are the ones who are set apart as holy by circumcision, because that's what it does. Circumcision marks a holy people, and they are also the guardians of a blessing for the world, from the people marked by circumcision, who are the offspring of Abraham, in the land of Canaan, one of those, one of the circumcised, will bring a blessing for the whole world. Let's move on to the Mosaic Covenant, because again, we have so much to cover. If you want to read more about it, there's some books we can recommend. (laughs) The Mosaic Covenant. Fast forward 400 years. Abraham and Sarah give birth to Isaac. God renews the promises to him. Isaac and Rebekah give birth to Jacob. God renews the promises to him. Jacob has 12 sons. They settle in Egypt. The Egyptian pharaohs eventually enslave and oppress the Hebrews. God raises up Moses and Aaron to deliver the nation from their Egyptian bondage. And in Exodus chapter 6, you don't have to turn there, but in Exodus chapter 6, God specifically says that he's doing this, that he's freeing Israel, the Hebrews, from their Egyptian bondage out of faithfulness to the covenant that he made with Abraham. Uh, Because we we didn't read it, but God had also said that your offspring will spend 400 years of bondage, 430 years of bondage, and this is coming to an end, and God is going to deliver them according to his covenant. He's fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant to his people to bring them into the land after their time of bondage. And I bring that up to say that it's very important to see the, the close connection and relation between the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant. Are they the same covenant? No, they're not the same covenant, but they're related to one another, very closely related. Let me ask you this. If you drew a circle that represents the extent of the Abrahamic covenant, its parties, its precepts, its promises, its penalties, so the circle represents the people of Abraham in the land of Canaan and the things they have to do and the penalties that are threatened against them. And then if I asked you, now draw the same kind of circle for the Mosaic covenant, what you would do is actually just draw the same exact circle. You'd say, okay, this is for Abraham's offspring. Uh, This is for the land of Canaan. Uh, This is to bring about the seed who blesses the nations. If we break it, we're cut off. It's It's the same people, the same parties, the same promises, precepts, and penalties. The parties are Abraham's offspring. The promises are life in Canaan. 
The precepts are circumcision and all the ceremonial laws that God added. As Paul says, not that God gave circumcision through Moses, but that by circumcision, you're obligated to keep all the law of Moses. If you have been circumcised and set apart as part of Abraham's covenant, you have to keep the Mosaic covenant. So the ceremonial laws of Moses' covenant are an expansion of circumcision, more or additional positive laws, additional ceremonial laws of cleanliness and holiness. Circumcision is a law of holiness, and so are the others that are added in Moses. And the penalties of the Mosaic covenant are to be cut off from the land, to be cut off, as in Genesis 17, and excluded from the inheritance. But when we speak about the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant, don't be confused by those names as though we think that Abraham and Moses occupy equal positions, because they don't. Abraham was a federal head. The promises flow through him to those whom he represents. So it's, we talk about the Abrahamic covenant. But when we talk about the Mosaic covenant, Moses was not a federal head. He was a mediator. So God communicated the covenant to Moses and transmitted it to the people through Moses, but Moses was simply mediating. God gives it to me, I give it to the people by way of communication and mediation. But Moses was not a federal head, although God had said to him, I covenant with you and your offspring after you, or you and any party that you represent. No, and when Moses disobeys God and he's disinherited from entering the land of Canaan, is anyone else disinherited when he fails? No, his actions don't stand for anyone else. When, he's, uh, when he is disinherited, no one else is. So Moses is a mediator, but he's not a federal head. And so the Mosaic covenant is not the covenant of which Moses is a federal head. It's the covenant of which Moses was the mediator. Now please turn to Exodus 19, and we'll begin to read some passages that help us to see how the Scriptures speak about the Mosaic Covenant. I've asserted that it deals with the same people as Abraham, that it has the same kinds of promises as the Abrahamic Covenant, the same uh, promises, precepts, and penalties. Let's, let's prove this. Let's show it and demonstra- demonstrate it from the Scriptures so that we understand the covenant according to the Word of God. Exodus chapter 19, verses 5, uh, yeah, verses 5 and following. This is God speaking to Moses. God says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, same language of Genesis 17, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses, the mediator, he communicates this. You must obey the voice of the Lord and you must keep his covenant. In verse 8, after he transmits this and communicates it, all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord as a mediator. Notice that God commits Israel to obedience. He commits Israel to keep the covenant, and Israel responds by pledging their obedience. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. God will bless them if they they obey Him. If they keep the covenant, He will bless them. 
and the people commit to obey all that God has spoken in the covenant that Moses transmitted to them in greater fullness. So we see God says, if you obey, if you hear my voice, if you keep the covenant, I will bless you. But what if they disobey? Well, let's flip over to Deuteronomy. Disobedience, flip to chapter 30. Disobedience leads to curse. It leads to exile. It leads to destruction. If you break the covenant, God will break you. And this is summarized in Deuteronomy 30, 15 through 20, the blessings for obedience and the curses for disobedience. And I want you to notice, I'll bring it up again after we read it, but notice as we're reading the connection to the promises of the Abrahamic covenant. Deuteronomy 30, verses 15 to 20. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways and keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. In verse 20, the very last thing that we read, what does obedience to the Mosaic Covenant control? What is it that you get to enjoy if you keep the Mosaic covenant, so that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers. This means that the Mosaic covenant controls the extent to which Abraham's descendants enjoy the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. As God threatened Abraham's offspring when circumcision was instituted, so also what we see in the Mosaic Covenant is a larger set of laws and threats which suit a people that are about to enter into their land. There's no need for God in Genesis 17 to institute circumcision and the full extent of the law of Moses when the people were already promised to pass 430 years in bondage before entering the land. They don't need the rules for government and life in a land if they're not there yet. But as soon as Israel finishes its time of bondage and is about to enter into the land, then God expands upon what he had already established and said, if you're going to live in the land that I give to you in the Abrahamic covenant, you need to live in that land according to the Mosaic covenant. And if you do not keep the Mosaic covenant, obeying the statutes and the laws and the rules, guess what? You can't stay there. If you won't be a holy people in a holy place, if rather you will be unholy and disobedient and idolatrous, I will take you out. I will exile you and destroy you and curse you. 
So remember the, the circle we drew of the, the extent of the Abrahamic covenant, the offspring of Abraham in the land of Canaan with obedience to positive laws and a threat of disinheritance if they refuse circumcision. They must keep the covenant or be cut off by the covenant. This is exactly what we find in the Mosaic covenant. What are the precepts of the Mosaic covenant? They must keep it. That was Exodus 19. Keep the covenant, referring to the moral law, but also ceremonial obedience. Just as failure or or rejection of circumcision was a breaking of the covenant, so also uh, a rejection of God's ceremonial law is a breaking of the covenant. What are the promises of the Mosaic covenant? You shall live long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. What are the penalties of the Mosaic covenant? You shall not live long in the land that your, that your uh, God is giving to you, that he swore to give to your fathers. The Mosaic covenant will disinherit you from the Abrahamic covenant if you disobey it. So do the circles of the Mosaic covenant and the Abrahamic covenant overlap? They don't overlap. They're the same circle. Are they the same covenant? No, but they deal with the same people, the same kinds of precepts, promises, and penalties. Abraham's covenant still provides a certain um, fundamental stability because even in Deuteronomy, God says, when I exile you because you're going to be unfaithful, nevertheless, I will bring you back. I will fulfill my promises that I swore to Abraham. So in Abraham, the kingdom of Israel begins. A land is set apart and a people for that land, and they must keep the covenant and live as those who are circumcised, the holy, set-apart people of God. Fast-forwarding 430 years to the Mosaic Covenant and the entrance into the land, we find that the kingdom is going to be governed by the Mosaic Law. You must abide by the moral law and the ceremonial law and the judicial law. You must keep the laws and the statutes and the rules. And if you will not, you will be disinherited. This brings us ever so quickly to the Davidic covenant. And I want you to keep Israel's history in mind. Joshua's generation that took the land, they were largely faithful to God. And it's recorded in Joshua that God fulfilled the the entirety of his land promises to Abraham. It very explicitly states that the Lord God gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. Nothing remained. The book of the Judges, however, begins with the children of that generation, the generation that grew up in the land, and they did not know war because they didn't have to fight to get the land. They simply grew up there. And the author of the book of Judges notes that Israel's enemies began to oppress them. Turn to Judges chapter 2. Why is it that God's people in their own land are being oppressed by foreign powers or neighboring powers? Shouldn't they be protected and blessed in Canaan? Judges chapter 2 verse 20 explains why it is that the people of Israel are suffering in their own land. God says, because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice. So because Israel is failing to obey the Mosaic covenant, God is is denying them the Abrahamic blessings. They're suffering in the land tribe by tribe 
And how does the book of Judges end? It repeats a phrase used earlier in the book. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Do you hear that? There was no king in those days. So as we approach the Davidic covenant, we need to understand it as the solution to the problem of Israel's unfaithfulness to the Mosaic covenant. The cycle of the judges is all about partial and imperfect and incomplete rest. Israel is unfaithful to the covenant. God delivers them into the hands of their enemies. God raises up a deliverer, and the land had rest for 20 years, and the land had rest for 30 years, and the land had rest. There's this kind of rest that's not very restful. Well, we fast forward all the way past Saul and to David, and in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God makes a covenant with David, the Davidic covenant. And in this covenant in 2 Samuel 7, God promises rest to his people through a line of kings. In particular, in verses 10 and 11 of 2 Samuel 7, God says, And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. God himself is saying, this covenant that I make with you, David, and your offspring after you, this is the solution for the problem of the judges, the judges' cycles. I will give them rest through you. You will provide for them the solution. And God promises also to establish the throne of one of David's descendants. God says in verse 11 and following, Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. God will establish the kingdom of one of David's descendants after him. And God promises his own presence with the king through the temple in verse 13. He shall build a house for my name, the Davidic descendant, shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So in the Davidic covenant, God is making promises to David that God will give rest to the nation, that God will establish the throne of David that in particular, one of David's descendants will build the house of God and have an eternal, everlasting kingdom. But there are also threats, sanctions for the kings. Turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 9. In 1 Kings 9, God communicates the Davidic covenant to Solomon. And look at verses 4 through 9. And as for you, what does that sound like? It sounds like Genesis 17. It sounds like Deuteronomy. As for you, this is your part. If you will walk before me as David your father walked, with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules, if 
Then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David your father, saying, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. So notice that Solomon must keep the covenant by obeying God's law, the statutes and the rules, the commandments, the statutes, and the rules. That's verse 4. Solomon must obey. But what if he doesn't? Here's the threat. Verse 6 and following. But if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I've set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them, and the house that I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight, and Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples, and this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone passing by it will be astonished and will hiss, and they will say, why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? Then they will say, because they abandoned the Lord their God who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshiped them and served them, therefore the Lord has brought all this disaster on them. Now, I know it's a lot of things to keep in your head all at once, but what is God referencing to Solomon in the Davidic covenant? What, what are the threats that God invokes? Well, first off, Solomon, David, and his sons, they need to keep the Mosaic covenant. And if they don't, the threats of the Davidic covenant are the threats of the Mosaic covenant. God is invoking the curses of Deuteronomy 29 as the consequences for David's sons if they do not keep the law. Exile from the land. And all of the the people will hiss and be astonished and the, the city will be in ruins and they'll ask, why has the Lord done this? Because they abandoned my covenant, because they broke my commands. If we put all the pieces together, Abraham, Moses, and David, this is how they work. They work together in this way, each functioning to establish and govern the kingdom of Israel thus. God promised Abraham and his descendants the land of Canaan, and he brought them into it, thus establishing a kingdom, a place with a people. God gave them the Mosaic covenant to govern them in the land as the law of the kingdom. God placed the Davidic dynasty over the people and commanded the king to keep the law in the place of the people. If the Davidic king is righteous and keeps the Mosaic covenant, then the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant will be enjoyed by the people. They will prosper in Canaan. They will have victory over their enemies. They will be fruitful and multiply and have blessed life in the land of Canaan. When the Davidic king is faithful to the Mosaic covenant, the people enjoy the Abrahamic blessings. But if the Davidic king is wicked and breaks the Mosaic covenant, then the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant are denied and removed from the people, and they are exiled from Canaan. As goes the king, so goes the kingdom. And if you think about the rest of the history of Israel in Kings and Chronicles, what is consistently recorded for us? Righteous kings bring blessing to the people, and wicked kings bring curses upon the people. When there is a faithful king who does everything according to his father David and walks in the ways of his father David, worshiping God purely, then the, the kingdom is blessed. But when they walk in the ways of, of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and they worship other gods, 
then the kingdom is cursed. But similar to the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant has a fundamental level of guarantee as well as an individual level of not guarantee. (laughs) What I mean by that is this. God promises, well, let's just remember how the Abrahamic covenant works. The Abrahamic covenant promises a multiplied people in the land of Canaan, but individuals and families or generations, such as the wilderness generation, can cut themselves off from that land and their inherit their, um, their heirs, the next generation will inherit it. So one person or one generation does not disinherit the rest. Similarly, in the Davidic covenant, God promises that there will be a faithful Davidic son whose kingdom will be established, but it's up to each individual king to be faithful. And if they're not, their kingdom will not be established. So the Davidic covenant promises a faithful king, but there's no guarantee that you, if you're that Davidic king, will be the faithful one. You must be faithful or your line will be removed, or not your line, but your kingship will be brought to an end and you'll be replaced by your successor son in the Davidic dynasty. A faithful Davidic king who keeps the Mosaic Covenant inherits the Abrahamic blessings for the whole nation. And the people were waiting for the faithful son of David with that perfect and eternal and glorious kingdom. And this is necessary to understand because it it explains the development of the Messiah concept and one of the primary ways in which the mystery of Christ grows exponentially in the Old Testament. What do I mean by the development of the Messiah concept? If you have it in your mind that everyone was waiting for the Messiah from the beginning of time, that's not accurate. In particular, the Messiah concept begins with the present Davidic king. The Davidic king is the Messiah. He's the anointed one. He's God's anointed on earth. Every Davidic king is Messiah. So why are they waiting for one? Because of the Davidic covenant. Because as they look at a particular Davidic descendant and they say, he wasn't faithful. Even Solomon in all his glory, he wasn't faithful. And Ten out of the tribes, more than half the kingdom was taken away from him. And so as the Israelites began to see each Davidic king prove himself imperfect and unfaithful, and as it gets to the point of the the exile, the conquest of Jerusalem by the Babylonians, and the exile of the kingdom of Judah into Babylon, it, it pushes them to a breaking point where they're saying, where is the Lord's anointed? Where is David's faithful son? Where is the faithful king? And you can, you can read this clearly in Psalm 89. Turn there with me to Psalm 89 as we read just a few verses. It would be great to read the whole psalm, but we can't. And you'll see Israel's longing for David's faithful son. Psalm 89, verses 46 and following. How long, O Lord? This is Israel in exile trying to wrestle with everything that's happening. Will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. For what vanity you have created all the children of man. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his power, his soul from the power of Sheol? Lord, 
Where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? They're asking the question, God, you made a covenant with David to establish his throne and give him a faithful son with an eternal kingdom. Where is it? Where's your steadfast love of old? They're searching, longing for the faithful son of David. And it's in the prophets that we find God making promises to the people that David's faithful son will appear. And in the prophets, we find that when David's faithful son appears, he brings with him a new covenant, and he gathers the nations to himself. Let's look at Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel 37, verses 24 to 26. The glorious future is being prophesied in the language of the present. Ezekiel 37, 24 and following says, My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever, and David my servant shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. You see here that the future, the promise of a future perfect Davidic king is connected with a people who keep God's law and a people with whom God makes a covenant of peace, an everlasting covenant. Now turn back to Isaiah 11. Isaiah 11, 1 through 3, and then we'll skip down to verse 10. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him the nations shall inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. So when the faithful Davidic king arrives, what happens? He's a signal for the peoples. The people see him, and they flock to him. They inquire of him, where is David's faithful son? Where is the son of David? Where is the king? And his resting place shall be glorious. What is this covenant that he will bring to the people What is the blessing that the faithful son of David brings to the offspring of Abraham and the nations? Behold, the days are are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord." For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more." 
God declares the end from the beginning. And all the steps from the beginning to the end lead to the end. The end is that Christ brings all things to consummation, including the unification of the Jews and the Gentiles. How will this take place? A faithful son of David will bring a new covenant and an everlasting kingdom for all peoples. And this is the blessing of Abraham in Genesis 12. This is the blessing for the world, the purpose for which Israel was raised up. And when we combine the Abrahamic, Mosaic, and Davidic covenants, we can see how David's covenant in particular focalizes and narrows the hopes of Israel and the world into one person, David's faithful son. He will bring an eternal kingdom through a new covenant. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. In conclusion, the kingdom of Israel was established and governed by the Abrahamic, Mosaic, and Davidic covenants. Abraham and his offspring will dwell in the land of Canaan as a holy people, and from them will come a descendant who will bless the nations. David's line will rule over them, and from David's line will come a descendant who is faithful, righteous, just, merciful, and powerful. He will bring a new covenant and will draw the nations unto himself. Now, what Israel and so many have struggled to understand was that Israel was a means to an end and not an end in itself. They were tenant workers, as Jesus put it. And because of this, they were an exceedingly blessed people. Paul said in Romans 9, verses 4 and 5, they are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, plural, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. What a blessing for the Jews. But they misunderstood that when their king came, Jesus, he would bring a new covenant And in order to partake of his eternal and glorious kingdom, they must enter that new covenant. They wanted to keep the Mosaic covenant, thinking that the kingdom of Israel was the end in itself, that the blessing for the nations was the Mosaic covenant, the old covenant. But the blessing for the nations was not the old covenant, it was the new. And there was a heavenly country greater than Canaan, a prophet greater than Moses, a son greater than David, a new covenant greater and better than the old, an eternal kingdom of grace and glory, not of this world. He came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, 
who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Brothers and sisters, Jesus made the new covenant with the houses of Israel and Judah. He sent the gospel to Jerusalem first, then to Samaria. Then he sent the gospel to the nations and the ends of the earth, including all peoples in his covenant and kingdom, all the way to you and me. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, how we thank you that you have included us, the nations, the Gentiles, in this wonderful new covenant. We thank you that we are heirs according to promise, that we are the offspring of Abraham who have received the blessing promised through him. We pray that you would help us to bring the gospel to all nations and to the Jews themselves for whom the gospel was given first. We pray that you would have mercy on them and bring them to salvation. We pray that you would cause us not to be prideful, that we, the wild branches, have been grafted in, that we would not be scornful, but rather that we would humbly rejoice with all those who are our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.